loving being outside. We're in Revelation chapter 20, if you'll open your Bibles there. We're going to continue in our study through the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to jump right into it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Revelation 20, verse 2, we continue. He laid a hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And I'm going to interrupt myself here and just point out something really cool here. That, that Satan gets bound and thrown into the bottomless pit by an unnamed angel. It's like people, you know, it's not God himself who has to go and deal with Satan. Satan is a very powerful uh, demonic spiritual being that wreaks a lot of havoc in a lot of lives, but he's nothing compared to God. And God just sends one of his nameless angels and says, would you take care of that right there? And so I just love that, that the, that the Lord just sends this nameless angel and this nameless angel goes, lays hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, verse 3, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and he shut him up and he set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. We've been in Revelation now for, for about nine months. And uh, we're in the home stretch. We've, we, we've got just these last few chapters. Um, we left off with the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus returned in his second coming. He brought the raptured church with him. Uh, those saints uh, that have been, as well, that had been martyred for their faith, brings them with him in his second coming. And, and so last week we saw the defeat at Armageddon. And immediately after this defeat... Well, God takes the Antichrist, he takes the false prophet, and they throws him directly into the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire is the final resting place for everybody who rejects Jesus, only there ain't no rest there. This is a, this is a horrible place. It's, it, is, it is a place of eternal torment and suffering. Listen to what Jesus said uh, in, in Mark's gospel. This is the point in time where I would put it up on the screen for you. We ain't got no screen, so I'll just give you the, the scripture reference. It's Mark 13, 49 and 50. But Jesus said this. He says, at the end of the age, the angels will come forth. They're going to separate the wicked uh, from among the just, and they're going to cast them into the furnace of fire. Here's what Jesus concludes with the thought saying, there will be weeping wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is the lake of fire. Separate from the lake of fire, the Bible also talks about the bottomless pit. Well, we'll just, you can hang out of those for me, Mason, until we're done there. Otherwise, third service will never hear all the announcements. They won't know what's going on. So, separate from the lake of fire, the Bible talks about the bottomless pit. Uh, we read about the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 9. We read about it now here uh, in, uh, in Revelation chapter 20. And, uh, and, and so the, the question is, what exactly is the bottomless pit? 
In the Greek, the word is abuso. We get the word abyss from this. And, and that is what the bottomless pit is. It is the abyss. And the Bible teaches that the abyss, well, it's the Guantanamo Bay of prisons for the demonic forces. That's what, that's what the abyss is. This is where they're going to be imprisoned before being cast into the lake of fire. Uh, in 2 Peter 2.4, uh, Peter uses the Greek word uh, tartarus to describe the abyss. Uh, here's the way he puts it. He says, God did not spare angels uh, when they sinned, but cast them into tartarus and committed them into pits of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now that word tartarus, it's a term that Peter borrowed from Greek mythology. And it was a place in Greek mythology that was reserved for the absolute worst sinners who had personally offended the gods. And so Peter borrows this term and he applies it to this bottomless pit that is a true thing. Uh, Tartarus uh, in the Greek mythology sense does not exist, but in truth there is a pit uh, that is very much like it. And so Peter borrows that term from Greek mythology to refer to uh, this place that's reserved for the worst of sinners who, who uh, had offended God. Now, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14, God said that this will be Satan's fate as well. Um, he said this, he said, uh, Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 15, he said, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I also will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And yet, the Lord says, you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And so the Lord says this through the prophet Isaiah. And here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we have the fulfillment of that prophecy given by Isaiah. Uh, but it raises some questions. Uh, if not for you, certainly for me, because, because I go, well, gosh, why, why do you bother throwing them in the pit when that's not the ultimate place? Why not just throw them into the lake of fire like you did with the Antichrist and you did with a false prophet? Why, why go to the, to the interim place and not to the final place of judgment with him? Why don't you send him to the lake of fire? Uh, and, and then beyond that, why are you going to let him out again in a thousand years? Like he's going to put him in there, he's going to keep him there for a thousand years, and then he's going to let him out. And it's like, well, why? Why on earth are you going to do that? Well, we're going to look at this more next week in detail, but the short answer is that God uses it. He uses Satan's failed efforts to accomplish his perfect will. That's why. God, let, God does this because he's got a plan and he's got a purpose, and, and Satan's failed efforts are going to fit in perfectly with that. Now we're all familiar as Christians with Romans 8:28, right? That says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't mean all things are good. There's some really hideous things that God allows. There's some very evil things that God allows, but he uses them because he knows what's best. He sovereignly uses these things. So providentially, 
in his sovereign will, God chooses to allow certain things that don't make sense to us. I love J. J. Vernon McGee's quote on that. He says, providence is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. And humanly speaking, things happen that not only do we not understand, but but just the thought, just the idea, like, you know, God chaining Satan up and he's going to let him out again to accomplish his will. I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, on the face of it, it just feels a little dirty. It just, it, it's just like, well, wait a minute, God's going to use Satan? Like, that's, that, that just seems wrong because he's a good God. He's a holy God. And, and here's the thing. Here's what you got to keep in mind. Just because God knows everything, just because God knows how it's all going to work out, and, and so that he can see how that can fit into his good and perfect plan. Just because he knows that doesn't mean that God himself is in some way evil by allowing that. You see, God is just moving and working, and, 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 and the thing is, it's, it's a providential deal. And we see the ultimate example of this with the cross of Christ. Because God, he knew that Satan was going to tempt Judas, He knew that Judas, in his free will, was going to be tempted by Satan and to betray him. Wicked things, evil things. But yet God also knew in his his foreknowledge that 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 was going to work perfectly with his plan of redemption for mankind. So he allowed it. So that he could die on the cross for your sins, for my sins, and he could redeem all of mankind. And so... God working this stuff together for good. He atoned for sin. He redeemed mankind. But listen, here's what I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss the immediate focus here in verse 3. This is where I just want to camp out on today. And I really want to dig into. If you look there at Revelation 20 verse 3. It says there as the Lord is, is talking about casting Satan into the bottomless pit. Shutting him up and setting a seal on him, listen, so that, he says, he, Satan, should deceive the nations no more. So that he should deceive the nations no more. All at once, what we have here is our great hope, and we have, as well, a great hazard. And we need to dial into this. We need to understand. It's the great hope, because what we have, listen, we have a day that's coming when Satan won't be able to deceive us. And all of the destruction, all of the heartache, all of the mayhem in this world, everything that has caused you ache or pain or, or you know, just the destruction that, that we experience, it's because Satan is a deceiver. He's ripped us off. And so it's all because of that. And a day is coming, our great hope, that God's going to deal with that. And mankind's not going to be deceived anymore. And God's going to remove that evil from the earth. That's our great hope. But listen, it's a great hazard. Why? Well, because it reminds us that that day hasn't come yet. That's the thing. We have the great hope that in the future, God wins. And he's going to send an angel to go deal with Satan. He's going to be locked away for a thousand years. The deception is not going to happen anymore. That's coming. But that ain't right now. Right now, we live in a day, we live in an age when Satan, the great deceiver, is wreaking havoc and he's ripping us off wholesale. And we have to understand that, that this is something that, that, that we need to be worried about. Not worried about, concerned about, focused on, cautious, conscience, conscious of. 
It's been said this. It's been said that the great uh, danger, the greatest danger facing Christians, facing the Christian church, it's not persecution. The greatest danger that we face is compromise. Think about Acts chapter 8. Here in Acts chapter 8, in the book of Acts, you've got Jesus who, who, who commissions his disciples, sends them out. Promises them, I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. He says, you know, make this, you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is, this is his promise. And then on the day of Pentecost, pours out his Holy Spirit. Great day. The guys are operating in power. Thousands of people getting saved. And then you get into Acts chapter 2 and, and they're continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And God's adding to the church daily such as should be saved. And it is awesome. People are selling their goods and possessions. They're giving to one another as they have need. And, it's, and, and people are seeing this. They're having grace and favor with everybody in Jerusalem. It's just as Jesus said that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's an amazing place to be a Christian after Jesus' resurrection. And, P- and the church is growing and things are great. And then all of a sudden you get to Acts chapter 8. And there's no all of a sudden, by the way, about it. It's several years into the church by the time you get to Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 8, Saul of Tarsus shows up. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He hates Christians with a vengeance. He presides over the stoning of Stephen, a prominent member of the, the Christian church in Jerusalem. And having then presided over Stephen's death, killing him for his faith in Christ, Saul now goes with a vengeance after the whole church. And the Sanhedrin has given him letters of authority. He can go wherever he wants to kill Christians. He's killing Christians left and right and uh, putting people in jail, separating families, destroying families, a whole bit. But you know what? That persecution didn't cripple the church. As a matter of fact, it actually furthered the church. You you read in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You've got, you know, burning liquid that catches on fire and all of a sudden, you know, you try and throw some water on it to put it out. It just scatters the burning liquid. So you get a fire that goes from here that goes to here. That's what happened in the early church. Saul brings persecution. It doesn't squash it. It just multiplies it. Man, persecution isn't the greatest danger to face the church. But listen, compromise, on the other hand, you read through the scriptures, you see how much compromise damaged Christians, how much compromise damaged the church. Several examples of that. Acts chapter 5, you look at Ananias and Sapphira. They're part of the early church, and, and God is, it's in the, during this time when God's doing this great work, and all these guys are doing it, they're selling their goods and possessions as anyone has need, and this, this cat named Barnabas, he, he's got this parcel of land in, in Cyprus, and he sells it, and he gives everything to, to the Lord, gives all of it, he comes, he lays it at the apostles' feet, gives it all to the Lord. And listen, Cyprus in that day is no different than Cyprus today. You want to buy land in Cyprus, you, you better be a millionaire. It's pricey. He sells a pricey parcel land, gives it all away. And the whole church is just sweetheart and, a, and a, just a, a proper motivation. And everybody's going, oh, wow, that's, that's amazing. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they take note of it. Uh, Ananias, rich dude, his name means God is gracious. Um, his wife, Sapphira, means beautiful. And so you've got the power couple, you know, you got Joe, successful, lots of money, trophy, beautiful wife, you know, by his side. And what do they do? They see this example and they go and they sell their possessions 
They have a possession to sell. And then they conspire together. Well, we're going to keep back part of it for ourselves and we're only going to give some, but we're going to say it's all. Now listen, Peter makes it clear when he calls them on this because he's anointed by the Holy Spirit to recognize you're a big faker. You guys are, you're just hypocrites and you're trying to put one over on everybody. But, but he clarifies, he goes, look, it's your money. You do whatever you want with it. But, but it's an affront to God and it's a compromise of your Christian witness. The moment you say, oh, I gave everything. You didn't give everything. You kept back part for yourself. You could have kept it all for yourself, but no, man, you had to say, oh, you know, we gave it all to God. And it cost them their life. Ananias is struck dead. Sapphira is struck dead. And so compromise, it's, it's damaging. It's destructive. You look at Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3. What does compromise do? Well, you've got a dead church. You've got a lukewarm church. You've got a loveless church. Jesus dealing with these churches. Why? Because compromise had crept in. How about David in 2 Samuel 11? Here you've got a guy who God's anointed, doing great things. He, 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 he delivers uh, Israel in might and in power, and God blesses him, and now he's leading the nation of Israel. And then you get to 2 Samuel 11, and David compromises. Just some, at some point along the line, he's like, uh, you know what, I know it's war, I know it's the season, springtime when kings go to war, I ought to be leading my troops, but you know what? I ain't going this year. I'm just going to relax. I'm going to take it easy. And so it's a compromise. He goes up on his roof. You guys know the story, right? Sees the next door neighbor's wife taking a bath. He's like, she's hot. And, and, and his guys try to tell him, yeah, so is hell. That's not where you want to be, bro. But he doesn't listen to him, brings her to himself, you know, and, and, and commits sin, kills her husband to cover it up the whole bit. Compromise. And before the story is over, man, that, that compromise, it's going to cost the death of his reputation, the death of Bathsheba's husband, the death of Bathsheba's marriage, the death of this innocent man, the death of the child that would be produced by this illicit union, the destruction of David's home. I mean, as you go on throughout Second Samuel, the following chapters, we've been through it together as a church. Man, you see that he train wrecked his family, his sons messed up because of his compromise, because of his sin. So compromise does a number on us. And, and what is it that leads to compromise? Listen, it's the deception of Satan. It all goes back to the liar that is Satan. He, and, and so we, we have this compromise. And, and Peter said this. He, he said, be sober, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that phrase, walks about, what it means is that he walks with aim and purpose. It's, it's the picture that we see. He's, he's using a lion as a metaphor. And if you watch the Discovery Channel and you watch a lion stalking its prey, you know how they walk about. They're, they're laser-sighted on what it is they're going after walking with that aim and with that purpose. Now, how did Satan do it? How did he walk with, with, you know, with you know, this, this walking about like a roaring lion in David's life? He deceived him. He, he, you, know, you don't know the conversation that took place in David's heart, but you can really reasonably imagine it. It's springtime. He needs to be leading the battle. But David, at this point, he's, he's like, eh, you know what, I don't need to go. I've been there, I've done that. I mean, I, I kind of, I've, I've paid my dues. I put in my time. 
like you know, you guys have all heard the song. Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Like I, like I got a lot under my belt here. I've, I've earned this. I can take my foot off the gas. I can chill, man. I can just relax. I'm good. I don't need to go to battle. You know, 2 Samuel 11, when David does that, something very in particular, it makes it clear he, went, he, he stayed home when he should have been at battle. And then the, I think it's, I think it's uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. It says that he went for a walk up on his roof. And in contrast to Satan walking about that Greek phrase, talking about walking with aim and purpose, well, when we read about David taking a walk on his roof in the Hebrew, it is not walking with aim and purpose, it's meandering. It's, it's he, he just walked without aim and without purpose. And so, so you know, you, you juxtapose those and you put them together and you're like, okay, well, what do we got? Well, we got the gazelle who's fat, dumb, and happy, doesn't have a clue, ain't looking at what's going on. And then you've got the lion who's laser focused on that lagging gazelle and away he goes, man, he's, he's going to be dinner. James said this, he says, if we listen to the word but we don't endeavor to keep it. We deceive ourselves. We pray this every Sunday. Lord, let us not be hearers of the word only, but help us to be doers of the word. We're praying this morning and, and we had, you know, triple the number of people praying and, and all this stuff. And it just occurred to me, I mean, all of the stuff that's going on here. When we first got the news that, that, that the gym was going to be torn down and not available in July and August... And that there was zero possibility of us meeting anywhere else except for outside. I wasn't exactly thrilled about it. <laughs> I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the end of our church. And we're dead. It's done. Everybody's going to go away. Nobody's going to endeavor to, to, to go out and do all that. And, and I'm just thinking of all this stuff. But you know what? This morning I found myself praying, God, thank you. Thank you for shaking us up. Thank you, because, because what happens is, you know, it's like we come out, we do this, and, and, and there's, it's just that part of our nature as, as human beings, as fallen man, I think. But we just sort of get into a rut. It's just kind of this rut of routine. But man, God shakes it up, and there's some sort of freshness to it. And now it, it's a matter of, you know, because that's what I equate, you know, if when James is talking about not, not being a hearer only, but being a doer of the word. When we get a little bit familiar in our, in our life and familiar in our relationship with the Lord and familiar sort of in our, our, our processes, well, and now it just, there's something that maybe we run the risk of just going through the motions. And, and so, you know, no, we're not just going to hear the word. We're going we're gonna to endeavor to keep it. Otherwise, what happens? James says, we deceive ourselves. See, there's a lot of deception that Satan is responsible for. But, it, but, but this deception, it permeates. Paul said this. He said, the world will deceive us. He said, the world will try to press you into its mold. Why? Well, because the world has been deluded. The world has been deceived. And so the world now is itself deceitful. Jesus warned this. He said, false Christs, false prophets, they're going to rise and they're going to show signs. They're going to show wonders to do what? To deceive, if possible, even the elect. Paul said the same thing. He said, the Spirit clearly says, in latter times, some will abandon the faith and they're going to follow deceiving spirits and things that are taught by demons, 1 Timothy 4. Here's the point. 
The point is that Satan's deception runs deep. We have this unholy trinity that exists in the world. We've got (coughs) Satan himself and the demonic forces. We've got the world system and we have our flesh, all of them having been deceived and influenced by the deception of the devil. And so what happens then is this deception runs deep. It flows through Satan, through sinful men, through demons, through a fallen world. And Paul warned this. He said, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. All brings us to this place as we're focusing on this danger, this very real danger that we face today. Yeah, the hope is coming. Yes, the hope of what is going to happen in the future is coming. I say this often as we go through the book of Revelation. Look, it's history. And we talk about, you know, it's, it's prophecy because it's in the future. That's what, you know, but it's, but it, but it's a history lesson. It's, it's just a history that hasn't happened yet, but it, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. But when we deal with issues of history, it's kind of hard to engage ourselves in it because it's like, well, that's coming yet in the future. What has that got to do with me today? Well, we're very clear what it has to do. Yeah, the time of deception, Satan being bound, is, is, is coming and we have that great hope. But we live in a time of deception today and we need to be aware of it and we need to be watchful of it. And I ask you the question, this is something I want you to actually write down, take a walk with this, this week. Are you being misled? Are you being deceived? Are you allowing bad company? Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Are you allowing bad company into your life? The, the bad company of, uh, of bad counsel, of unbiblical thinking, the bad company of unbridled lust, the bad company of thoughts that you failed to take captive to the obedience of Christ. Are you allowing this bad company to corrupt your character? Turn to Hebrews chapter 3, if you would. Just to the left of Revelation, a few books, Hebrews chapter 3. <coughs> We're at a pastor's conference this last week, myself and, and uh, past, all the pastors here at the church, and among many wonderful godly pastors that we got to listen to. We listened to Dr. Paul Tripp and um, he just rocked my world. I'll just say that. God used him just to, just to gut me like a fish. And, and what I'm about to share with you is part of, of in part, not all, but just as part of what he had to say. And man, it just fits so perfectly with this, with this attitude of being deceived. Hebrews chapter 3, begin, <coughs> excuse me, beginning of verse 12, Paul says this. Well, if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, which I do. So uh, Paul said this. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. In other words, do it today, not putting it off till tomorrow. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. (coughs) Paul's writing to believers here. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's talking about the unbelief that creeps into believers' lives. 
And, and so he says, look, you need to be aware that this happens. And here's what you got to watch for. He says, you got to watch for an evil heart of unbelief. An evil heart of unbelief. The idea is this. It's that you become obstinate by means of deceit. Okay? Uh, some, some synonyms for, for obstinate. You, you become stubborn. You become hard-headed. You become unyielding. You, 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 you act in such a way, in other words, that imperceptibly your heart gets steered off course and before you know it, you start acting in ways that aren't godly. And it, it's this obstinate behavior that you develop. Why? Well, because you're being deceived. That's what he's warning against. You see, and what happens is this is something that's painfully obvious to everybody around you. You are oblivious to it, but everybody else around you is saying, what an obstinate person. What a stubborn person. He can't even see that, that, that he's walking in a way that is ungodly. She can't even see that what she's doing is completely contrary to the faith that she professes. That's what he's talking about. My kids when we were raising them, particularly my daughters, when we were raising them, just something, inevitably something would happen and, and they, just all of a sudden they'd begin acting in a way to where we would be like, wait a minute, that's not, that's, you're not acting like yourself. You, this, is, this, is not, this is not who I raised. This is not the daughter I raised. And, and, and you, you, would, you would watch and you would go, Wait a minute, what, what, what's going on here? And inevitably, what we would discover, and Brenda just had the radar for this, you know, and, and that special connection that mom and daughters have. But, but we were watching, inevitably, what you'd realize is that, that they, they had some sort of relationship, some sort of friendship, to where what was happening is somebody's influencing them. And we're like, wait a minute, we didn't raise you to act like this. You're, this, is, this is contrary to the way I raised you. Not what your father led you to do. Oh, wait a minute. You're influenced by somebody else. And inevitably, we would make sure that that person was not going to be around to influence them anymore. You know, we just shamelessly cut that off. But, but listen, it's, it's this thing that, that happens, man. Not, I didn't raise you this way. Who's influencing you? Well, you know, again, it's a deceiving influence. And, and so what... what what Paul says here is, look, you've got you to be warned that that happens, that, that, that there are these deceiving influences that, are, that, that we let into our lives, and, and as these deceiving influences come in, they, we begin to become obstinate because we've been deceived. That's his, that's, that's his warning. And then so he says, look, here's what you've got to do. You have to exhort one another daily. Now that word exhort, it's very important. It's a Greek compound word and it means to call to one side or to call to one aid, one's aid. And, and, and what did we do with our kids? We would, when we saw this, hey, somebody's influencing you, you're becoming obstinate, what would we do? We would call them to our side. And we would say, hey, no, 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 I didn't raise you that way. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, we need to do that with one another. What Paul is saying here is very much what the message that Josh gave last week, we have to make a decision that we are going to live in community. That's what he's saying. You've got to let people in. You've got to recognize you have a blind spot. 
And there's a reason they call them a blind spot. Because you're blind to them, and somebody around you will see this. Now, if you'll turn from chapter 3 to chapter 10, Paul continues this thought. Typical Paul, takes him seven chapters to clear his throat and expand on this. Um, But no, Paul expands on this in chapter 10, and look there in chapter 10 of Hebrews, and we're going to finish up here, verses 24 and 25. What does he say? He says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, that word consider, you know what it means literally? It means to watch like a hawk. That's what it means. Doesn't mean, hey, act, be considerate of somebody. Yes, we need to do that in community. But that's not the idea. What he's saying here is you have to watch each other in the body of Christ like a hawk. You have to watch attentively. You have to fix your eyes on somebody. You got to fix your mind on what they're doing. Now, we don't like this, okay? I know from experience when somebody fixes their eyes on me, my immediate, and they have the audacity to tell me, that there's something that I'm doing that, that, that is wrong, biblically, wrong in, the, in the, the sight of the Lord, I would love to tell you that I'm holy and pure, and I, oh, thank you for the exhortation, my brother, my sister, my spouse. Thank you so much. No, what do I do? Quit nagging me. Good grief, mind your own business. Hey, you know, and I'll get all spiritual. Hey, you, you got to look at the log in your own eye before you're looking for the speck in my eye, you know? And, and, and so all of a sudden we start getting all Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know, kind of thing. So what happens, what do we do? This is why Paul says this. He, he says, look, we, this is what we got to do. We got to pay attention to each other in this way. And then immediately, the very next verse, not forsaking the assembling together as is the manner of some. Why? Because what happens when we experience that, when somebody actually has the audacity to call us on our sin and to exhort us to something, well, our response is to say, you know what? I don't need that. I was looking for a church when I found this one. I'll just go find me another church. He says, no, don't go doing that. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. No, we need this. That's the point. And the whole idea here is that, look, a day is coming when the deceiver is going to be bound up, but it ain't yet. The deceiver is alive and well, and you've got things that are going on in your life that you need somebody who's going to love you enough to tell you the truth. And my question for you is, are you letting people in? Are you letting people speak truth into your life? Have you given invitation to people to say, listen, I need, to, I need the truth. I need it straight And I need to hear it. Listen, I'm going to share with you a quote from Dr. Paul Tripp in closing on this idea. He says this, Do not protect yourself from the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. No, run, run, run to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are not being condemned. You are being graced and you're being rescued. Man, cut me to the heart, gutted me like a fish. Listen, I, I have a precious wife. She says to me, you know, just things that only a wife can say. You're doing it wrong. That's not good. You know, whatever. And, I, and, and, and actually, you know, and I, I would say, you're being critical. Quit being so, quit being so critical. And, and the, these, these words just cut me to the heart. Look, 
This is, you're not being condemned. You're being graced. You're being graced. When you have somebody that loves you enough to tell you the truth, you're being graced. Don't react adversely. Yeah, you know what? Sometimes some people might not come with the right motivation. Maybe somebody tells you something and, you're, and, and you could say, oh, they are being critical. I would say, you know what? In light of these verses, turn your critics into coaches. You know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Lord, is there something here? Do I have a blind spot? Somebody pointed something out in my life. Listen, we need to live in community. Amen? We need to live like this. We need to understand that there's a deceiver and the cure for the deceiver is a life lived in honest pursuit of the Lord in fellowship with one another. The Bible says, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The Bible says to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And bearing one another's burdens does not mean we just give them a wink and a thumbs up and say everything's great when we know that everything ain't great. No, the Bible says it's an enemy that multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend.